So if you would, you can go ahead and turn to your Bibles in Psalm 2. In the uh, pew, if you don't have a Bible, in the pew Bibles there in front of you, I think it's on page 418. And uh, if you need a Bible, if you know someone that needs a Bible, as always, we offer those as a gift to you out in the, in the uh, foyer. There are some blue copies. You can feel free to take one of those and hand one of those to someone that you know may need it. And so once you've found Psalm 2 there on page 418 in the Pew Bible and your own Bible, if you would, please stand and read as I read Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. So if you want to take notes today, I will uh, give you the four points that I have, and they sort of follow along with these four stanzas in Psalm 2. And so for verses 1 through 3, the point is, the first point, the nation's rage. The nation's rage. Verses 4 through 6, we see the Lord laughs. The Lord laughs. And then verses 7 through 9, the son's heritage. And then verses 10 through 12, simply two paths. Two paths. And as we go along, I'm going ha to have you add kind of a second little point or heading for each of these sections that I hope will help us to see what it is that God is doing in and through this psalm for his people. So David, the author of this psalm as well as Psalm 1, had an understanding of reality that many in the world today, and I would say some in the church, don't have. He understood that reality is war. Or to say it another way, war is our reality. As king, David understood and he participated in war. He experienced all the brutality that goes along with it. He understood the cost of war, economically, geographically, materially, physically, emotionally, psychologically, even spiritually. He understood the cost of war. I don't know how many of us think often enough or seriously enough about war. How many of us have truly considered the cost of war? 
For many of us, war is little more than a temporary interruption of the supply chain. It may mean higher cost at the pump. It may mean we hear some politically motivated sound bites on the news, or maybe we come across some posturing on social media, depending on whose side of the war or political aisle you're on. But wars are much more significant than all of that. Not that those things are not important, but true, real war is more significant. War involves real people, any of, any of which could be breathing their last breath at any moment. Some of you have probably read or heard, but according to some projections, that some statistics that have been done through studies, the 20th century was the most deadly in recorded history. The total number of deaths caused by or associated with war has been estimated at 187 million people. 187 million people lost their lives in the 20th century. For a comparison's sake, in 1913, that would have been 10% of the population. So around the beginning of the 20th century, that for next 100 years or so, 187 million people, or 10% of the world's population, when the 20th century began, lost their lives because of war. The nations rage, and evil men take counsel. They rage against one another, but they are also raging against the Lord and His anointed. Friends, there is much death and destruction caused by wars of men, but there is a spiritual war happening. And there is much destruction and death from this war as well. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul goes on to describe the armor of God that believers will need if they are to go to battle in this spiritual war. How they are to fight against the devil and his schemes. And he ends this passage talking about the sword of the spirit, which is the very word of God. We must also be people of prayer filled with the spirit if we are to fight. As Christians, we must understand that yes, we do battle against evil ideologies, against wicked men, but even more fundamental than that, we must remember that we are at war against an enemy that is stronger, more cunning, more scheming, and more and more evil than any man that has ever lived. And so in order to stand and be ready to do battle, we must be Holy Spirit-filled people of the Word and prayer. Psalm 1 and 2 help us to set the context, not only for all of the Psalms, not just for the Bible, but for our understanding of history and reality. These Psalms clearly show us there are only two paths that everyone will take. There is no third way here. One path is the blessed man who finds refuge in the Lord and delights in his law. On the other path is the wicked man who hates the Lord. He hates his word. He hates his people. 
and this path leads to death. In Psalm 2, we see the wicked raging and rebelling against the Lord and His anointed, having turned away from God and His word, seeking after their own faulty counsel. This is a situation we also find ourselves living in now. And so then we ask, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Let me read those first three verses of Psalm 2 once more. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here we begin our first point and ask, why do the nations rage? We could just simply say it's because of sin, and this is true, but there's more that's being said. Here in Psalm 2, David is, is describing all the peoples of the world, Jews, Gentiles, kings, religious leaders, government leaders. All of them were united in their sin and rebellion against God. All of the wicked of the world were totally united. Acts chapter 4, we won't take the time to read that, but you can go and you can see one way in which God is experiencing rebellion against His plan and His purposes. But we know that that purpose and that plan was not thwarted by the evil acts of men or the scheming and conniving of the Satan. A quick point here. The anointed in Psalm 2, you'll notice if you look at those verses there, it's talking ultimately about Jesus, and that's why there's the, the big A there. Psalm 1 and 2 were both written by David, as I said earlier, God's anointed little A, king of Israel. And so there's a sense in which this psalm is about David, but primarily as a pointer to the true king of Israel, the, the anointed son of God, Jesus. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 35, and David's own words from Psalm 110, when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this gave hope and courage to the Israelites. And it gives hope and courage to us today. Jesus is the true king that will set all things right under his rule and his reign. A reign that will last forever. A kingdom that has no end. And so when... We ask, why do the peoples rage? Why do they plot and take counsel against the Lord and His anointed? It is because they are united in their sinful rebellion against God and His people. They're united in his, their rebellion against His Word and His plan of redemption through His Son. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for plot here in Psalm 2.1 is the same word used in Psalm 1, verse 2, for meditate. So where in Psalm 1... The blessed man meditated on the God's word. We see in Psalm 2 that the wicked man plots against God and his word. So Christian, here's a good place for us to ask, how important to you is the word of God? Do you hunger and thirst for it? Do you delight in it? If yes, then amen and carry on eating and drinking from the Bible more and more each day. But if not, then how do you expect to be able to stand and fight? How do you expect to protect and equip yourself and your children and other loved ones against wicked men, 
against the schemes of the devil. If your affections are not for God and His Word, then what do you desire? Your answer determines the trajectory of your life. So this raging has literally been going on from the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. Wicked man's sin and idolatry, their wickedness and hatred of God has been raging since then. If you have not read Romans 1 lately, go back and read Romans 1 in light of what we're talking about here this morning. See how people rage against God, against His Word, against His truth, against His very creation. Some are actively raging. They know exactly what they're doing. They scheme and develop plots and counsel with one another to rage against God, to develop ideologies and philosophies that try to counter the truth of God's very Word. But others are blinded by this. Their rage is not one that they recognize as actively going against God. They have become deluded in their thinking. They are unaware, in a sense, that what they believe is openly rebellious against the good God that created them and gives them life and breath and being. But in both cases, the power and influence of satanic forces are very real and are very active. Even here in the West, where we have, for, in most cases, become adverse to the supernatural. It's not like that in many other parts of the world. And we would, it would be good for us to be reminded that there are supernatural evil forces at work trying to undermine and thwart the plans of God. Yet, those forces are nothing compared against God and His anointed. There are many ways in which wicked men war and rage against God. Abortion, the sex and gender issue, racism, ethnic partiality, eugenics, transhumanism, if you've ever heard of that one. They rage against identity, who we are fundamentally. There is even a war against truth, which we know, but there is a war going on for even language itself how we communicate. If we can no longer communicate to where people can understand us, that's a problem. We need to fight for language as it communicates truth. There are many other battlefronts in this war against God, but I want to draw out one area that I think encompasses or is at least upstream from all of these, and that is the family. In Matthew 19, four, verses 4 and 5, He, Jesus, said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the first place made them man and woman? It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and will live with his wife, and the two will become one. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, Satan has been trying to destroy marriage and family in order to thwart, to upend, to stop the very promise that was made by God in Genesis chapter 3 about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head in order that reconciliation can take place between sinful men and a holy and just God. God, His Word, His people are being assaulted on multiple fronts. Wicked men and Satan are waging war, but we must stand and fight, and the family is a strategic battlefront from which to do this. Marriage and children, this is God's design. It's His normative plan for people. And I know that this may not speak to everyone in your experience. 
but it is God's normative plan for everyone. This is how we are to live our lives. And so if you have questions or comments or pushback on that, please see myself or Pastor David after the service. We would love to talk to you and more about this, but we are not condemning you if you are single. We are not condemning you if you have no children. But in God's good and perfect plan, this is the norm. We could say it another way. Fish. Fish have to live in water, right? They have to live in water not only so that they can live themselves, but also so that the fish kind can continue. It is much the same way for people. Family is the water. If there is no family, then the continuation of kind cannot continue as it was created. The Bible, the family, is the foundational institution that is necessary for the continuation of humankind. As the health of the family goes, so goes the health of the other God-designed institutions like the church and the state. Yet, sadly, even in the church today, the value and the importance of marriage and family is often neglected, or in some cases, though rare, even downplayed. A couple of years ago, some of you may remember this, I think I've mentioned it before, but there was a well-known pastor. He wrote an article on how having children can be a means of evangelism and advancing the kingdom. The article was based on the truth of Scripture about family, children, discipleship. This pastor got eaten up on social media and in the blogosphere, not mainly by non-believers, but by people professing Christ, by other Christians. These Christians were hurt by what he said. They felt like less than whole people because they did not have children. And so many of these, it was later pointed out, chose not to have children. They married later in life, and so they were also waiting to have children in that context as well. The point is, these Christians were placing their feelings over the truth of God's Word. We, we must be on guard against the schemes of the world and Satan. This is one of the ways in which God, or excuse me, Satan has undermined Christ's bride, the truth the gospel, is by disconnecting the family as a means of living out that gospel, the implications of the gospel, as a means, as a testimony to the world, the lost world of who Christ is. He is the very husband of the church. We are married to Christ. So to what end is all this raging and scheming and fighting? Ultimately, it's vanity as it says there in this first stanza. The wicked of the world want to be free of the bonds and the cords of God. They think that true freedom is found by not being subject to God and bound by His truth, but rather by being true to one's own identity, one's own self, and one's own desires. Being true to how we feel and think about who we are. Sadly, these people don't find freedom. They don't find joy or peace or contentment but rather they find themselves enslaved to their sin. The very thing that they think provides the freedom, provides the joy, is actually their master. They are mastered by their fleshly desires. They are bound to darkness, and they are rejecting light. So what is the Christian's response to all this? Think deeply 
on how your marriage is pointing to Christ in the church. At the end of this war, the king rescues his bride, and they enjoy a wedding feast, and they truly live happily ever after. This is a testimony to the world of the love, grace, and mercy of a good God. Now let me zero in on men for a moment. Men, you are the prophet, the priest, the protector, and the provider for your family. You are the gatekeeper of your home, so live like it. Proclaim the truth of God's word every day to your wife and children. Pray to God on behalf of your family. And don't just be willing to lay down your life, actually do it. Do you really need all that free time to pursue hobbies? Do you really need to work all those extra hours to obtain money, or are you working for this or that? Whatever it might be that is preventing you from being the husband and father that God has called and commanded you to be, stop it. And I include myself in this because I, too, can get caught up in the nonsense that constantly distracts us from what God has called us to be. Ask yourself, as a provider, am I working hard enough to give my family what they need? And I'm not talking about what they want, and I'm not talking about what you think that they need. I'm talking about what God wants them to have. Talking about, are you providing a way that your family can be ordered so that your wife has the ability, the freedom, to spend with her children, your children, to disciple them, to care for them, to nurture them? Are you ordering your life in such a way that your wife can experience flourishing, that you can disciple her, that you can help her to grow in her relationship with God, that she can be your true helpmate? Are you, as a husband and as a father, willing to make the necessary sacrifices so that your wife can have a home that is tended to be an oasis, an embassy in this world of evil and destruction? When we talk about war, your home should be a place where you can come and find rest and peace and solace and be grown in the truth of God's word. I guess maybe another way to think about this in regards to the family and the home would be to ask, are all those wicked and sinful ideologies and influences moving toward and coming into your family and home, unimpeded and infect, affecting you, infecting you, and causing great harm to your family? Or as godly men and women, husbands and wives, parents, are we preparing and being prepared to train up and equip our children in our homes in the ways of the Lord so that when they leave, when we go out, we can be salt and light. I'd like for us to really consider this today, this week, and how we order our lives, how we live as husbands, as men. All right, that was a long point one. Point two, the Lord laughs. So here we could say, what, are, what, what is being said about God? This is that second part of that way to think about these 
Psalm, or these verses four through six. What are these verses telling us about God? Well, it says that he laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These verses reveal that God laughs, and he holds these wicked people in derision. Derision, when we think about it, I don't know about you, but generally, when I think about it, I have a negative connotation. But it usually means to mock or to ridicule. So there you go. However, when we think about God looking upon people in derision, this is not God being, you know, uppity or, or snooty. God is holy. He is perfect. He's looking at these wicked people in derision because they deserve it. They are wicked. They deserve judgment. You can reference Psalm 59, verses 5 through 8, that echo this point of God's derision towards wicked men. But not only does God look upon them with derision, he laughs. Why does God laugh? Who is he that he sits back and laughs and holds them in derision? This might be a good point, a good time to remind everybody of, as David has already mentioned, the sermon series on Sunday night, going through the attributes of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up a few here in a moment, but hopefully we can see that God is one who can look upon wicked people in derision, and it is not a wrong thing for him to do. Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's a good place for us to start to answer this question of why God laughs, why he looks down on them in derision. So let me read those verses, Exodus 3, 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient. All of creation depends upon Him. He is absolute reality. He is unchanging. He is absolute truth, goodness, and beauty. So then He is the very standard and source of all of these. There is much more that we could say about God from these, just these two verses here, but hopefully you get the point. God is the most important, the most treasured person anywhere at any time, period. So God can laugh. He can hold them, these wicked men, in derision because he depends on nothing and everything depends upon him. He is God and there is no other. Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verses 22 and 23 tells us it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, vanity. God is completely sovereign over his creation, including the lives and the affairs of men. So he can laugh and he can hold them in derision because he knows the beginning from the end and everything that happens in between. God knows how worthless their striving actually is. 
He knows all this because he knows all there is to know about everything. He knows all there is about this because he created everything. He is sovereign over everything. He has complete power and control and authority over all. Another thing God has revealed about himself is his providence, his complete governance of the world and everything in it. Isaiah 43, 13 says, Also henceforth I am he, there is none other who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God alone is in complete control and has all authority over everything that happens in his creation. Yet, sinful men rebel. They rebel against God because that is their desire. Be reminded of last week's sermon by Pastor David on Romans 9. If this tension between God's sovereignty and man's actions, his responsibility for his actions is, is tough for you, go back and listen to his sermon again. He makes some really good points of application and understanding about how we can hold these two seemingly points that seem to be in tension. We can hold them both because this is what God's word says to us. He is sovereign and we are responsible for our sins. We must remember that God's ways are not our ways and he has not revealed all things to us, only what we need to know. So what else does this tell us about God? God is God. We are not. But we should be humbled by this. God is not worried about the events of history since he knows the end from the beginning. And he has ordained all that will happen to happen. He has no fear over the actions of men or Satan. And so as warriors, this psalm should give us confidence and courage, not in ourselves, but in the sovereign God who has given us his word, his sword, and whose spirit indwells us. And he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So take courage in this fight, this daily battle that rages all around us. Verse 5 goes on to say, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's revelation, his word is powerful. It's mighty and it's deadly and it's terrifying. It is powerfully authoritative because he is who he is and there is no other. Recall all that we just said about God. When he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it, and he will do it. It's just a done deal. Because the Lord has set his king on his holy hill, there is terror in the hearts of men. Whether they recognize it or not, they are fearful. They know somewhere deep down that death is coming and judgment with it. So we see much has been said about God, his sovereignty, his providence, his authority, his control, his omniscience. But there's much that's said about his son. And so in the next point, point number three, the son's heritage, we can ask and answer, what does this section say about Jesus? Verse seven, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
The only begotten Son of the Father is the King that He set upon Zion, and His name is Jesus. At the baptism of His Son, the Father's voice was heard coming down from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So uh, it might be helpful here just to take a second and talk about this phrase. Uh, you may have heard it, the only begotten, or elsewhere, the only begotten Son of the Father, as you've read your Bible, or maybe you've, uh, as you've gone through catechisms or creeds or confessions, sometimes we read creeds here together, and you'll hear this word, you'll read this word, or this, excuse me, this phrase, the only begotten Son. And so what does that mean? Well, for one thing, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It does not mean that Jesus was created. He did not come into existence. He was not created by the Father. If you want to turn to John chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses there. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. From these verses, we see that Jesus has never not existed. Jesus is the Word here. So when it says, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not created by God. So begotten does not mean He came into existence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always eternally existed as the triune Godhead. Three persons, one God. Now there's a lot more that can be said about this. We're not going to go down that trail. But I thought this was a good time to point out, since we are talking about Jesus, and it uses this phrase, begotten Son, to push back on an old heresy. Maybe you've heard of the Arians and the Arian heresy. But they believed that God was, or excuse me, that Jesus was created. There are still people today who would claim to be Christians that believe that Jesus was created. He is not a big G God. He is a little G God. He is the son of God, the first. He is important, but he's not, he's not a member of the Trinity. We can see from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that yes, He is. He has eternally existed. He is God. So why is this important? Well, because a holy, sinless, perfect God became a man, and He remained sinless and perfect, so that He could pay the penalty for the sins of those that have rebelled against Him that they might be reconciled back to the Father through Him. God became man and dwelt among us in order that some might be saved. That's why it's important to understand Jesus was not created. Only begotten does not mean He was created. It means He was from God. He was sent for a purpose and a plan. Daniel seven fourteen says, And to him the Son was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Only this one true God could promise a kingdom to his son and fulfill that promise. Man did not establish and set this king upon his throne. God alone did it. The kings of men, Satan himself, are powerless against this God and against his anointed. And so there will be peoples from every nation and language that serve the king in this everlasting kingdom. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So we see that before the foundations of this world were ever laid, that God had a plan and a purpose, that he would send his son to fight a battle that we could not fight on our own. He was fighting on our behalf, those that believe in him. He's leading now his people, his spirit-filled people, to continue this fight as the war rages on until he comes again. His people from every tribe, tongue, and nation war not just against the schemes of men, their evil ideologies and philosophies, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. There are those that continue to rebel against God, but it says here that he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. As Psalm 1 told us, there are but two paths that each man can follow. You will either kiss the sun ex or experience his wrath. And so this leads us to our final point. The blessed take refuge. We could also ask, how do men respond? How do men respond? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be wise. Be warned. God offers a merciful and gracious warning to the wicked peoples of the world. A call to repentance. While they were still sinners in their rebellion, in their hatred toward God, he patiently and mercifully and graciously waits and extends an offer of hope and salvation. But in order to heed this warning, man must humble himself and realize that he cannot save himself through works of his hands or his mind. Wisdom apart from God is no wisdom at all. True knowledge and wisdom are from the Lord. The book of Proverbs make this, makes this very clear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. To understand this and joyfully and fearfully submit to this is really the first act of worship for all Christians. Think about that. Joy and fear go together as an act of worship. If you look back at verse 11, it goes on to say, rejoice with trembling. 
Friends, as one pastor has said, fear does not rob us of our joy for two reasons. One is that it drives us to Christ where there is safety. The other is that even when we get there, the part of fear that Christ relieves is the hope-destroying part. But he leaves another part, the part we want to feel forever. There is an awe or wonder or trembling in the very presence of grandeur that we want to feel as long as we are sure it will not destroy us. This trembling does not compete with joy. It is a part of joy. As Philippians 2, 12 through 16 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Like Paul, we too as believers can live a life that is not in vain, but rather an act of worship as we rejoice with trembling, working out our salvation in faithful obedience to God and his word. This fear is not a fear of loss of life. It's not a fear of hopelessness, but it's a fear. It's an awe. It's standing in the presence, experience the grandeur of God, knowing that he is on our side. Now we get to the end of Psalm 2 in verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, so here we have it in this last verse. The position that every human finds himself in. The ultimate question everyone will have to answer. But in the midst of this human dilemma, there is a patience from God demonstrated in that while sinful rebels continue to war against the Holy One, He offers hope to the hopeless. The two option, options of men, will we kiss the sun or not? It's really... Simple, but hard. Will we kiss the sun or not? Back in Psalm 2-1, we see that those that continue on in rebellion will ultimately be all for vain, all for nothing. It will be empty. The rebellion will not save them, soothe them, protect them, or keep them from experiencing the judgment and wrath of the Son of God. But others will kiss the sun, having had their eyes opened and their hearts forever changed. They will repent and turn away from their wickedness and turn to the Son. They will be counted as blessed, bringing us all the way back to Psalm 1, verse 1. The blessed man finds eternal refuge, peace, joy, rest, and peace forevermore in the Lord. So, if you look back at our four points, these, these four stanzas of Psalm 2, we can sort of break it down like this. Verses 1 through 3 tell us all about man, his wickedness, his rebellion, his hatred of God. Verses 4 through 6 tell us about God, his sovereignty, his providence, his, his provision and protection through his Son, which leads us to verses 7 through 9 that tell us about his Son, the Anointed One, the Christ, the King that he has set upon Zion, the one through whom reconciliation is offered. And then verses 10 through 12 tell us how we should respond to this news. This news of the wickedness of man. This news of the goodness and holiness and justice of God. This news of the offer 
of salvation and hope through his anointed son. We see the wickedness of man, his attempts at living a life apart from God because of the sinful pride that dwells in his heart. It causes a rebellion at every point in his life. But God is not put into a state of fear or anxiety or depression or worry over the actions of men. These actions, they do not catch God off guard. In his sovereign providence, the Father sets his Son upon his throne, fulfilling the promise of a kingdom and of people as his heritage. Then we see the reality of the human situation, the real reality that all peoples must reckon with. We have but two options in our lives, a painful death that has no ends, or life everlasting with a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God over all. And so if you're here today and you have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, the Son of the living God, this is a gracious warning to you. Be wise. Kiss the Son. Trust in the work of Christ on the cross. He did live a perfect, sinless life. He did willingly come to bear the penalty of the sinful rebellion against God, the Holy God. So if you believe and trust in Him, you too can be saved. So pray now. Plead with Him to open up your heart, to grant you repentance and faith. But be warned, the wages of continued sinful rebellion is death. If you would like to talk more about this, if you have questions about this, please see myself or Pastor David after the service. We'll be around and we would love to talk more about this with you. And so brothers and sisters, for us that are believers, the wicked and Satan will be at war with the gospel until the very end. Yet this psalm is good news for us. We can take courage. We can have joy. We can experience peace and rest in our Lord and Savior in the midst of these battles. It's not because of our strength or our wisdom or anything else that is in us other than the Holy Spirit. We fight a war that has already been decided. We fight a war and we are on the side of the victor. We are on the side of the anointed one, the one that God the Father has set upon his throne, King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you now for your very word that is life to us. That we could come to you, that you hear us, that you understand our pleadings, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would protect and provide for us. And Lord, you hear our prayers for those that we love and know that are yet to bow their knee to you, to submit to your authority to accept the hope that only you offer. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in their hearts and their minds to accept and trust and give their very lives to Jesus. And we pray this now in his name. Amen.